Okay, often I write a little intro before I start these episodes to sort of give the listener the impression of what this particular episode is going to entail. And this one I tried to, but it didn't feel super appropriate because while uh, the Matilda film was and, you know, is a nostalgic favorite of mine, I don't feel that it's my movie. We're doing this one because of Sarah, who is one of my co-hosts for this episode. My name is Ryan. It's a real deep dive. We're talking about Matilda. This was one of your favorite books growing up, if not your favorite book, period. Absolutely, 100% my favorite book until I discovered the Harry Potter series, which that's a story for another time. But yeah, I I went through a Roald Dahl phase. Matilda was my favorite, favorite Roald Dahl book, but I, I very continually went and got every Roald Dahl book out of the library I could. And the copy of Matilda that I got personally, I still have upstairs and the cover is almost entirely ripped off. It's incredibly well read. I think I read that book like 25 times in fourth grade alone. Yeah. And I I do remember when I was bringing up the prospect of doing the film as a podcast episode, you mentioned uh, something about getting it out of the library a ridiculous number of times before you had a personal one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, a really stupid amount of times. And uh, my elementary school librarian kept trying to convince me to take out other books, but but I didn't want to. Yes. And that was Mrs. Wu. Yes. Who is your current boss. Yep. Because you were a librarian. Yeah. And your grade school librarian is now your boss. Yeah. Listen, I we could have told, figured out at a young age where I, I deserve to be. It took me a while to get here. It was a winding road to realize that, oh, librarian, light bulb moment. Duh, why wasn't I doing this the whole time? But here I am. Yeah, another thing I wanted to bring up before we dove into this film is that, um, all right, Toby's joining us for this episode. Introduce yourself, Toby. Hello, everybody. That is Toby. And lots of parents try to get their kids into their pop culture, and it doesn't always work out. And there, there is a bit of a struggle on your end. Yeah, Toby has been fairly into a lot of the things that I, I, I'm into. You know, we got him into Star Wars. That took a bit. We went through all of the Marvel movies with him. He loved those, although that's kind of a slam dunk. That one's easy. And when we were doing, you know, uh, picking out books to read during the whole COVID quarantine fiasco, Originally, he started with dog books because those are his favorite. Pibbly Sylvan bought him a dog book on a whim and it worked and he read all of the dog's purpose novels we could get our hands on and then some more dog books. And finally, we were out and I have a copy of Matilda sitting on his bookshelf and I said, you know what? This was my favorite book when I was your age. Why don't you read it? And he was like, I don't know, mom. I don't really want to. I don't know. And then he got through a chapter. And could not stop giggling, and he just kept reading, and now he's on a roll doll kick. He's currently reading James and the Giant Peach. I finished it. Oh, you did? Oh, that's right. I finished. That's right, you did finish. Uh, oh, maybe whoa. we'll do Charlie and the Chocolate Factory next. You haven't done Charlie and the Chocolate Factory yet. Not yet. Uh, no BFG either? No, he's read the BFG. That he's, was the first one okay. he ever read. And also, I also am um, still reading um, one of the books that I think, I think it was you that got me it from Target before quarantine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're talking about Raw Doll books, but... He doesn't care. Yeah. All right, to get things back on track, so far he's still not as bad as Rachel in terms of diverging. Okay, plot of the film, in case it's been a while since you've uh, watched this, is that it centers on a child prodigy named Matilda Wormwood. She is routinely neglected by her parents uh, named Harry and... uh, What's the mom's name? Do you remember what the mom's name is, Toby? 
don't. Well, you read the book like a week ago. It's like zin- two weeks ago. Uh, it's it, like it, it, it's Zinnia. Yeah, I mean, if if we really want to just dig into J.K. Rowling for a second, she <laughs> she steals so much from Raldal, and it took me an embarrassing long time to realize that Matilda's mom is basically Aunt Petunia. I mean, Matilda's parents are, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley, but like Zinnia, Petunia, they look the same, they act the same. Yeah. Anyway, she's neglected by her parents and mistreated by her brother. However, she finds solace at the local library and escaping into the various adventures in the books there. Probably why one. are you staring at me? You know why. Anyways, <laughs> uh, Matilda's parents initially refuse to enroll her in school because they uh, need her to sign off on her father's uh, suspicious packages. He is a shady used car dealer, and he gets illegal stolen parts. That will come up later. During a lecture, Harry accidentally lets it slip that a bad person should be punished. He meant to say a child, but he created a loophole for Matilda. So she starts off by bleaching her father's hair by hiding hydrogen peroxide in his hair tonic. And then when he's going over the various ways that he gussies up clunkers to sell at overinflated prices to, to, uh, to chumps, she glues his hat to his head. However, the film doesn't include the bit in the book with the bird in the chimney, which you found very disappointing. I did. It's it's my favorite prank that she does in the book. Um, I forget exactly because it's been a long time since I've read it. Uh, Maybe you can help me out here, Tobes. I forget exactly what her dad does to cause her to do that prank, but she takes a parrot from a neighbor's house and teaches it to say a phrase and then puts it in the chimney and convinces her parents that the house is haunted. Uh, I think that neighbor's house was actually a friend's house. Okay. Neighbor, friend. Do you remember what her dad did to make her want to punish her? Punish him? Um... Hmm. It's okay if you don't. I do not. Okay. Well, moving on. Things come to a uh, boil when Matilda's father tears up a library copy of Moby Dick and forces her to watch TV with the rest of the family. The Million Dollar Sticky starring John Lovitz. Matilda becomes increasingly enraged until the TV explodes, thus giving us the first insight to the fact that she has psychokinetic powers. Such a satisfying scene. One of Harry's car dealership customers is Miss Agatha Trunchbull, the despotic principal of Cruncham Hall Elementary School. Uh, Matilda is soon enrolled at the school, and she begins to make friends, but she's horrified by Trunchbull's draconian punishments for minor and sometimes non-existent forms of insubordination. She grabs a little girl by her pigtails and just sort of shot puts her over the fence. Matilda unwittingly uh, helps the girl to a safe landing with the powers that she isn't quite uh, aware that she has yet. Yeah, the hammer, hammer throw, throw. Yeah, it's important to note that the Trunchbull is an Olympic athlete, or was. She uses her athletic prowess to torture the children. It's not just like, you know, typical bully stuff. She's throwing them over fences, use like a shot put, and yeah. Matilda's teacher, uh, Miss Honey, she takes a liking to Matilda, and after witnessing some of Matilda's way smarter than precocious and beyond her years type of mathematical knowledge, petitions uh, Trunchbull to bump her up to an advanced class, which Trunchbull flatly refuses because she's the villain, in case you haven't figured that out yet. Now, uh, Honey also tries to inform Matilda's parents of her genius-level intellect, but it falls upon deaf ears. Uh, Roughly around this time, Matilda discovers that her father's crooked business dealings have attracted the scrutiny of FBI agents Bob and Bill. 
however, Harry ignores Matilda's warning, believing their cover story about being speedboat salesmen, despite the fact that there isn't a lake within several hundred miles of their house. Uh, one of Matilda's friends puts a newt in Trunchbull's water as a prank. Trunchbull uh, accuses Matilda, who telekinetically uh, tips over the water as she gets agitated. This followed Trunchbull sticking Matilda in the chokey, which is kind of like this little sweatbox room similar to The Great Escape, because uh, the car that Trunchbull bought from Matilda's father turned out to be a lemon. Miss Honey then invites Matilda over for tea. She reveals that her mother died when she was two and that her father brought in her stepsister-in-law, Miss Trunchbull, to live with them. Honey's father then died of a very convenient suicide very shortly afterwards, and all his money and the house was left to Trunchbull, mysteriously enough. Matilda convinces Honey to sneak into her old house, or rather she dashes into it while Honey tells her no, in order to retrieve some uh, precious heirlooms, including her childhood doll. Uh, however, they have to make a narrow, nail-biting escape when Trunchbull unexpectedly returns because the car broke down again. Yeah, and she, they're also stealing chocolate, and they're, it's unclear if, because it's her father's chocolate box, and it's unclear if those chocolates have been there for, you know, like, 25 years, or if the Trunchbull just continuously buys this exact same brand of chocolate that Magnus did. They don't really clarify well, I mean, how else is she going to remind herself that the chocolate is much too good for children if she doesn't right. replenish it, the it, supply? Well, you know, and she counts them to make sure that they're all there, so. Yeah, at this point, Matilda begins to hone her telekinetic abilities and practicing. In so doing, she thwarts the FBI agents who are investigating her father uh, after they confront her, or well, she confronts them, and they threaten to stick her in an orphanage. Her next plan is to go over to Trunchbull's house and, while standing outside, retrieve the doll with her mind powers and convince Trunchbull that the house is haunted. She has found out that Trunchbull is very superstitious, haunted by the ghost of Magnus, uh, Miss Honey's uh, father, uh, out of all people. Now, this goes fairly well. However, Trunchbull discovers uh, Matilda's hair ribbon on the scene. Now, on the next day... Matilda is finally able to reveal her powers to Miss Honey. She tried to clue her in beforehand, but uh, had some performance issues. Trunchbull has decided that she is going to teach the class for the day in an attempt to bully Matilda into giving a confession. At this point, Matilda uses her powers to write a message on the blackboard, pretending to be the vindictive ghost of Miss Honey's father, and basically orders Trunchbull to give Miss Honey back her house and her money and to skip town forever. A furious Trunchbull attacks the students, but Matilda protects them and throws Trunchbull out over an elaborate scene where the kids pelt her with food and she just drives away totally frightened of the ghosts and the goblins and whatnot. Uh, Honey is then able to move back into her family home. Matilda and Miss Honey are having tea together when they are approached by uh, Matilda's parents. The FBI have enough evidence to prosecute Harry at this point, so the family is fleeing to Guam, which is part of the United States, so therefore extradition isn't even an issue. They can just arrest them at the airport, which I'm assuming is what happens. Probably. But uh, Matilda's parents are not smart, and that's sort of the whole point, so... Yeah, uh, Matilda expresses that she'd rather stay with Honey, and she presents uh, adoption pages to her parents that she had prepared for just such an instance. <laughs> Seemingly remorseful of her never quite understanding uh, their daughter, Harry and Zinnia sign them. Matilda lives happily ever after with Honey, who is now the principal of Crunchham Hall. And that is the film. And it's basically the book, too. They do a really, really good job of sticking to the source material, but also making it work for the different medium. Yeah, I was going into some of the divergences from the source novel. For one thing, the setting has moved from England to the United States. Hold on one second, Toby. I think I'm just say something. Yes. 
I wanted to comment back on the pigtail thing. I think I remember the name of the girl. I think it was Amanda something. Yep, it was Amanda... Amanda something. <laughs> Amanda something. You heard it here, folks. Don't have to go to the IMDb's. And also, when uh, Matilda's parents are running away, instead of Guam, they're fleeing to Spain, which does have tough extradition. Furthermore, the last third of the book has the uh, Crunchum Hall being taken over by a character named Mr. Trilby, who is not even in the film. I think it makes more sense for Miss Honey to take over the school. Yeah. And also, uh, the biggest change, uh, Matilda loses her powers at the end of the book. The explanation is that now that Matilda has a curriculum that actually challenges her intel intellect and that she is recognized by the people around her, she doesn't need her powers anymore. But yeah, she, she get, still gets to levitate books at the end of the movie, which is a change I prefer. Yeah, it's fun. I like it. I am very happy that she got to keep her powers. And I would like her to keep her powers forever because I think it would be awesome. And I hope they write a second book. If it's oh. not Roll Doll, it should be somebody else. That will dovetail into something we're going to bring up a bit later. But, uh, yeah, I take it you would like telekinetic abilities, Toby. You do realize that if you move stuff with your mind, your friends are going to call you whenever they need someone to help them move. Yep. Yep. You're going to have to do that every time. And you'll do all of the chores around the house. All the time. I don't care. You see, the best superpower is a power that nobody notices that you even have. Like good luck powers. Things just go your way. Yeah. Yeah. Or maximum magic powers, which I have. Yeah, yeah, he's Forge. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into the production. All right, uh, if you know anything about Roald Dahl, you're aware that he absolutely hated the film version of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Which is such a shame, because it's pretty good. I mean, it's not very... It's not super faithful to the source material. It's not as far off, I think, as Roald Dahl thinks. But I think if he had been alive when the second remake, when the second version was released, he would be like, you know what? I'll take the Gene Wilder one. Yeah, I don't want to talk about the Tim Burton version. Anyways... Because of that, a Matilda film was a non-starter for years. How it changed is that screenwriter Robin Wickord, or Spycord, I'm not sure, offered to write a screenplay for free to Doll's Widow, adding that if she liked the screenplay, they could go into it if, uh, as partners. And apparently Doll's Widow really liked the Matilda screenplay. When the film got into development and Danny DeVito got involved, he wrote his own version of the screenplay, which, you know, cherry-picked some of the first draft, but diverged wildly in other ways and Dolls Widow put her foot down. She's like, no, I like this version. And even though revisions to screenplays are fairly common in Hollywood, they almost went to court over it. But DeVito backed down and ended up going with the spy court version of the of the script. If you know anything about Danny DeVito as a director, you'll know that Matilda is a um, anomalous film in his catalog. He's very fond of dark comedies, which I'm sure doesn't surprise anybody. But uh, he had small children at the time, and a lot of Hollywood types, when they have their own kids, they kind of want to make a kid's movie just so they can have something to show their children when they want to know what mommy or daddy does for a living. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of it. DeVito hadn't heard of Matilda until he was teaching his kids how to read and they're filling up the chapter books and he stumbled across a copy of Matilda library and kind of fell in love with it. So once he knew there was a Hollywood version in circulation, he pounced on it. Thank God for that. 
Boycord's script had a couple of divergences besides the major ones I mentioned in the novel. The uh, the bit about Matilda getting books out of the library and the message that she kept getting from the various characters in the book being, you're not alone. A lot of people attribute that to Dahl, but if you scrutinize the book, it is not in there. Swicord wrote it. It is based on her personal experiences as a, as a young bookworm. Also, uh, the line of uh, where Miss Trunchbull eats the chocolate and goes much too good for children, that is not in the book. That was stolen from a cookie commercial. Mm. Apparently, it was about parents who bought cookies for their kids, and they're just like, no, I'm eating all these cookies. Okay. I mean, there are times where I think about hiding all of the good stuff in the house and not letting Toby have any of it, but I'm not a mean person. Although, there is candy that is mine that you're not allowed to touch. I know that. Oh, apparently, at Danny DeVito's the behest, all of uh, Matilda's little dolls were uh, designed by Mara Wilson herself. She 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 made all the uh, dolls uh, by hand. That's really sweet. Yeah, well, once DeVito found out she could do that, he was like, oh, that'd be a nice little touch. Do that for the movie. Now, one thing that you definitely wanted to talk about during this is that uh, over the course of the film, Mara Wilson's mother died of breast cancer, which just broke your little heart when you first heard about that. Yeah, yeah. Danny DeVito was incredibly fatherly to her during the time. And uh, I think if I remember correctly, because I read one of her books that she wrote and um, one of her op-eds too, he got the film like re- like Rush released so that uh, her mom could see it before she died. Wilson keeps crediting DeVito with helping her get through that, and she just said in general, just like having something to do while her mother was dying helped her get through the day. Yeah, and uh, I guess her and Danny DeVito are still pretty close, and like he like still checks on, on her from time to time. And it was one of those moments where I was just like, you know, I really liked Danny DeVito as a, as like a, you know, actor and I liked the things that he was in. But then I read that and I was like, Danny DeVito is a national treasure and we should protect him at all costs. All right, before we go any further, while I've read a number of uh, think pieces and oral histories and analytical articles about Matilda leading up to this, there was in particular a uh, Newsweek piece that I came across that focused not on the film as a whole, but specifically on the cake bit. Oh, boy. So, Toby, you recently read the book, and the cake scene is in the book. Where do you think it's worse, in the book or in the movie? Movie! Yeah, I agree. The scene that we're talking about is uh, when Miss Trunchbull catches a uh, chubby little kid named Bogtrotter. George Bogtrotter. George Bruce, Bruce, Bruce. Bogtrotter. Why did I say George? Yeah, <laughs> Bruce Bogtrotter. I knew it was alliterative. Yeah, stealing some of her chocolate cake. She puts on an assembly where she puts this kid in front of everyone else as a big spectacle and gives him a piece of chocolate cake. And after he finishes it, gives him like this comically oversized cake and forces him to eat the whole thing in front of everyone as he just gradually gets sicker and sicker. And like Matilda comes up and like tries to encourage him as it seems like he's about to, you know, pass out. And he, you know, he gets through it and triumphs. And it's like he he scored a winning touchdown at the Super Bowl. He's like, yeah, I ate the cake. And then Trunchbull grabs the platter and smashes it over his head. The scene took three weeks to shoot. Apparently, Danny DeVito's a bit of a perfectionist. He kept wanting to get these wild, crazy angles. He apparently shoots films like Jackie Chan, where he'll get way more footage than he needs just so he can combine them in various different ways. The cinematographer, uh, Stefan uh, Chapsky, Danny DeVito met him because he was the cinematographer on Batman Returns, and he liked how uh, Chapsky used all of these wide-angle shots, both on that and Edward Scissorhands. Okay. Uh, apparently, Chapsky had a hard time talking to Danny DeVito at first because he wasn't wearing his penguin makeup anymore. <laughs> he was like, oh, you're a person and not a sewer mutant. <laughs> 
And Chapsky went into pretty great detail over, over how the cake scene was done because he kept using these special lenses because he needed the cake to look gross. And it looks gross. I like chocolate cake. It looks terribly gross. Yeah, and DeVito went over about how great that cake was. Everyone on set wanted a piece of that cake. It is. It is moist, but like moist, like is a word that a lot of people hate, right? But you definitely want a cake to be moist. But when you look at that cake, it's the bad kind of moist. Yeah. Now the kid who played Bogtrotter, his name is Jim Cars, and believe it or not, he wasn't traumatized by this. He 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 says that he still enjoys cake to this day, but. They needed three or four of those giant cakes per day for three weeks, and so many shots of him just stuffing his face, and every morning they had to paint his face with chocolate so it would look the same as it did the day before, and, you know, put it on his shirt so it would get all dry and crusty and nasty, and he said that was his least favorite part of it. Wilson's recollections were, and I'm quoting here, poor Jimmy, who played Bruce, though. I asked him before we filmed if he liked chocolate, and he said, kind of. I thought, only kind of. Uh-oh. I asked him at the end of it if he still liked chocolate. He got this thousand-yard stare. <laughs> yeah. That sounds about right. I imagine, like, now he's fine with chocolate cake because it's been, like, 30 years. But, like, I imagine, like, immediately following, he probably never wanted to look at a piece of chocolate cake again. Oh, he said he found his whole performance in the film to be kind of embarrassing. Uh, however, he has gotten over it. He's kind of proud. He thinks it's a fun little story. He can tell at parties and stuff. He used his child actor money to pay through med school. He's an orthopedic surgeon now. And uh, apparently got into bodybuilding because he's ripped. Good for him. Good for him, indeed. Another thing is when they did a cast reunion in 2013. They shot a video of all of them reenacting the cake scene. So it's just all of those kids now in their 20s and 30s doing You Can Do It, Bruce. Aww. And watch this giant, giant man going, Yeah, eat the cake! It's adorable. That is adorable. Yes, look it up if you haven't. DeVito cast Wilson first, and he cast all the other kids based on how they acted around Wilson. He also took great care to make sure that the kids would be hanging out with each other in between uh, scenes as best as possible. You know, first to get for them to get rapport, but also kids are notoriously hard to direct because they're fidgety and might have a hard time paying attention for long periods of time. Stop it. What Stop makes you think it. I'm talking about someone who's here, Toby? Because I'm a child and stop making fun of my kind! He says as he fidgets. Uh, and gets up and walks away from the microphone. Okay. Stop it! <laughs> you make it too easy. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's let's start talking about the cast. First off, we got to talk about uh, Mara Wilson as Matilda because she's the anchor of this film, and and she is in a bunch of uh, movies we watched a, a whole lot of times as as kids. You know, Miracle on Twenty Fifth uh, Street remake, Thirty Fourth. Blah. Sorry. I know. I hey, I said George, so it's fine. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're all allowed one. And, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire and all that. But it's hard to think of her as anything besides this. Yeah, I, um, I've i read one of her books and I've read some, like, think pieces that she's written online. And, you know, I watch interviews with her. I follow her on social media. And even though, like, I know she's older than me, it's still weird to see her as an adult because she has the same face. It's just gotten slightly more angular. Yeah, it's like Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, it's real 
bizarre to me because in my head she's still Matilda even though I think I saw Mrs. Doubtfire first so that should theoretically be my anchor role for her but no it she's she needs to have the red ribbon tied up in her hair and that's who she is to me I mean her performance in here is like it's like Robert De Niro style underacting in most of the scenes she's just like delivering the lines as dryly as possible but there's a hint of menace behind it because you know she's Carrie yep she can kill the girl with the red hat with the fire hose yep She's not quite as mean to Trunchbull, but she could be. Mm-hmm. And it's fantastic. Yeah, Wilson has said that she finds a lot of the, her roles embarrassing now and can't sit through them because it just makes her uncomfortable. But she's still proud of Matilda. She apparently puts it on when she's babysitting and such. Aww. Mara Wilson in general seems like the best case scenario for, like, child actors. Like, Macaulay Culkin just kind of got jerked around. And, uh, oh, boy, they... Jackie Coogan, they, they, they named a law yeah. after him because his parents stole all his money. The Corys. Yeah, the Corys. But yeah, Wilson got into acting because she wanted to. She had to talk her parents into it. She got out of it when she was sick of it. And she seems fairly well adjusted. Yeah, she went to an Ivy, didn't she? She went to an Ivy and got a degree in something uh, in the humanities, I think. I can't remember what it was exactly. But she's, you know, she's happy with her life. Yeah, and she's Ben Shapiro's cousin was able to get over that. And her articles for Reductress are hilarious. Yes. I pretty much read anything by her, so... All right, next up is not only the director of the film, but Danny DeVito is uh, Harry, Matilda's father, and he's also the narrator. Spycord was opposed to DeVito being the narrator. She thought that would be confusing. I legitimately never noticed it when I was a kid. Because Danny DeVito has a distinctive voice. I knew it was him. He does. It did not either it didn't bother me or it just didn't occur to me nope didn't bother me at all no there's a fan theory that the narrator actually is harry like a couple of years later realizing what he did to his daughter and remorseful what in jail yeah in jail probably um i mean that's not a bad headcanon i'm not sure if it's mine i don't necessarily buy into it i don't from the way that they were in the book particularly, and then, like, the way that they're presented on screen. They don't really grow as characters. There's no, like, I almost feel like there's no potential for growth for them. I think the bit where they sign the adoption papers is a sign of some growth. In the book, they're de- they're, they're definitely, like, a bit dismissive of it. In the movie, there's at least some kind of a pregnant pause where you look in their eyes and how, how their posture changes slightly when they realize yeah. that this is the best thing for Matilda, and then they, and they, and they do it. Yeah, and that has more to do with uh, is it Rhea or Rhea? I've always... Uh, Rhea. Rhea. Rhea Perlman and Danny DeVito's acting. I'm not sure if that has anything to do with the source material. <laughs> it might be where Danny DeVito was hoping to take it as the director, but... All right, and the next person we'll be talking about is Pam Ferris as Trunchbull. Oh, she's... Yeah, DeVito had gotten Perfect. a lot of tapes from opera singers and weightlifters, but as soon as he saw Pam Ferris just screaming dialogue, he was just like, that's my trunch bowl. She gets so sweaty and so red, and it's just, it's everything you picture when you read the book. Yeah, now Ferris apparently tried to keep her distance from the other children on set so that they would be afraid of her. Kind of like uh, Pennywise on the set of those It movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it apparently didn't work. Because the children thought that she was a big sweetie. Aww. She realized that her cover was blown. One of the extras walked up to her and held her hand. 
Taft, you were describing it, saying that uh, Ferris was one of the most professional actresses that he'd ever uh, been with. It kind of reminded me of a uh, passage that Tina Fey writes in her memoir, Bossy Pants, where saying that there are two types of good actors is the people who give like genuine human humanistic performances. And then there's those that really know the technical sides of acting, like where to stand, how to gesticulate so that you look as good on camera as you possibly can. And Chapsky said that Ferris is like she never missed a take. Like, she always knew exactly where to move, and she always knew where to channel her energy. You can see that on screen. She's pretty intense. Yeah, I mean, she nails every take she's in. Yeah. What do uh, you think, Toby? Is she better uh, than the book version of the Trunchbull? Yeah, I, I think a lot of the film rests on Trunchbull. What would you think of Trunchbull? I loved Trunchbull. I think she was the best Trunchbull ever made. Why? Because she's better than anything. Any Trunchbull. What other Trunchbulls have you been around? No, I mean the Trunchbull from the book. It's the best Trunchbull in the world. Oh, so the Trunchbull that you imagined in your head while you're reading the book was not as cool as Pam Ferris's Trunchbull in the Matilda film? No. Uh, one thing I st uh, stumbled across is that apparently um, Miriam uh, Margoyles auditioned to play uh, Trunchbull, but uh, got passed over. However, she was brought on to play Aunt Sponge in James and the Giant Peach, which also came out in 1996. Oh, she is real, I, you know. Margoyles is also apparently a doll super fan. Like, she auditioned for everything. She's amazing in James and the Giant Peach. So whoever made that call nailed it. I, I don't think she would have been as good as the, as the Trunchbull, honestly. But that could be just because Vampire isn't just so... She is the Trunchbull, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, DeVito apparently took a shine to her. She's in Death to Smoochie. Oh, yeah. We talked about that. Yeah. Yes, 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 we did. All right. And uh, next person, uh, Ambeth Davids as Miss Honey. Now, I pointed out to you that she is also the love interest in Army of Darkness. And you're like, wait, that's her? Yeah, I... Well, first off, it's been quite some years since i've seen army of darkness and also yeah i i have an entirely different like image of her in army of darkness like it's not i'm sure it's very obviously her but her hair is longer and darker i had a crush on miss honey as a child i had a crush on her and also wanted to be her it was a very weird feeling and so yeah yeah, I don't, I, I don't think I can, like, look at that actress and not see Miss Honey, so I'm sure if I paid more attention to Army of Darkness this time around, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's totally her. Well, she um, doesn't she's so pretty. Yeah, she, um, she, she doesn't have the glasses in Army of Darkness. I love those glasses. Yeah, she, she's really gentle and unassuming, and she's trying to, like, argue that she has gotten out of Miss Trunchbull's thumb, and she totally hasn't. She's She works for her. She lives on a cottage, like, literally in the front yard like it's not even on a separate piece of property like it, it's kind of sad yeah and matilda knows that it's sad that's like, why like matilda the part, breaks into the house yeah like the part where they're sneaking around the house and honey is just so pathetic throughout the whole thing and matilda's like girl i'm six and a half why am i taking charge here I already mentioned that uh rhea perlman uh danny devito's real life wife is uh zinnia in this she was hired at DeVito's behest, another thing that some of the people involved in the production of the film had issues with. Not sure why it was. Maybe he thought, you know, he had a good rapport with his actual wife. I think that would work. Maybe he just wanted to collect another paycheck. 
whatever the case may be, it was a good call because she's fantastic. It's a very limited role, but yeah, Perlman does as good as anyone else possibly can. She's she's a pretty great uh, character actress, and she can wring a lot out of a lot uh, out of very little. Yeah, it wasn't until I was older that you know I I first ever watched Cheers, and so when I was like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was that was kind of surprising. Meanwhile, that's I'm sure what most people back then knew her for. But I was just like, oh hey, it's Matilda's mom. That's how you know a millennial was watching Cheers for the first time. And last but to touch upon the FBI agents, uh, played by Paul Rubens and Tracy Walter. I forgot that one of the FBI agents was Pee Wee Herman. Yep. And the other one is Bob from Batman. Yep. That's just weird. And another thing, yeah, stock characters. This is that one of them is Pee Wee Herman, and that's distracting. So distracting. Next thing we're going to talk about is the music. And if any of you listening to this are very young and weren't around in the 90s, I have to tell you, between 1995 and the year 2000, Rusted Roots' Send Me On My Way was perpetually playing. Just, it was just always on. Now, you might not know that song by its name, but if I go, oh, boy. Yeah, yeah there it is. You know that one. It didn't actually chart all that high. However, it, it got very popular as a licensed thing. It was just in so many TV shows and car commercials, and it is used in two different instances in this film. The first one where Matilda is cooking herself breakfast when she's four years old because her parents are ignoring her, and then the second bit. Which is my favorite scene. Uh, I thought your favorite scene is... Uh, oh, no, no, no. My favorite scene is the other fun song. Yeah, yeah. Itty Bitty Pretty One. Itty Bitty Pretty One. Yeah, that, that, that's when Matilda is mastering her powers. Yes, yeah, with the cheerio. The score itself was written by David Newman, who isn't a big name outside of film scores. However, uh, he does have a lot of experience with kids' movies. He did The Brave Little Toaster. He did both Bill and Ted movies. Uh, He did Heathers. He did DuckTales, Treasure of the Lost Lamp, uh, Mighty Ducks, and Galaxy Quest. So So a lot of things that we watched as children. Yeah. Uh, he, he gets a lot of kids' movies because I think he has a nice sense of whimsy to it. The way he uses chimes in particular, I think, are very effective. He does soaring, but not in the John Williams way. It's sort of a lighthearted soaring. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he is a very frequent Danny DeVito collaborator. Not the Brave Little Toaster is very light. Yeah, but the music is. Yeah. Yeah, the music cuts through the horror treacle. Uh, yeah, he did a lot of DeVito films. He first worked with him with Throw Mama from the Train. He's on War of the Roses, Hoffa, and he also did the music for Death to Smoochie, which is also very whimsical. And that also cuts through a lot of the... Uh, yeah, one thing I know David Newman from, I um, I actually briefly met him personally. He, uh, on, on a Valentine's Day, I decided to take the person I was seeing at the time to uh, to see the Boston Symphony Orchestra. They were doing one of those things where they would play a movie and they had digitally removed the soundtrack mm-hmm. and but kept the sound effects and the dialogue and had the orchestra play the, the score live, which if you ever have an opportunity to do that, it really changes everything. It's really powerful. And I saw him conduct West Side Story. Oh, that must have been fantastic. Yeah, it was. I can't describe it. It was. It was. It was a really transcendent experience for me. And Newman is very passionate about it. You know, studied Leonard Bernstein very extensively. And out of anyone alive, he probably knows that music better than anyone. So when it was announced that. Steven Spielberg is directing a um, remake of West Side Story that's coming out this year, barring pandemic issues. David Newman is handling the arrangements of it. Makes sense. Yeah. 
Okay, the reception of this film. It got very positive reviews. Uh, Roger Ebert in particular loved it. He thought that uh, Trunchbull was one of the greatest kids' movies villains, villains ever. That's because she is. Uh, however, it was a box office failure. What? Yeah, it uh, had a budget of $36 million and only made 33 Wow, why? I, I don't know. Just nobody went to see it. However, it did find an audience on home video. No kidding. Yeah, because uh, we got a tape, and that tape got put through its paces. That was on our rotation. Yeah, yeah, we watched this movie a lot. Yeah, Almost well, as much as I took out the parent trap or we took out the brave little poster from the library. It steadily grew a cult reputation because we were not unique in that. A lot of kids got a VHS tape of Matilda at, at that time, and a lot of them watched it over and over again like we did. It just turned into one of those. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised when I heard it was about box office belly flop. That's, I Yeah, that's fascinating. Interesting. I wonder why. I don't know. Some things just don't connect. Or maybe it was just up against something else. Yeah, the studio itself was a little hesitant about it. For one thing, they thought the film was too scary. Mara Wilson herself thought that the script was very suspenseful. She had a very hard time reading certain passages of it. People kept pointing out the bit where uh, Matilda and Honey were fleeing through the house. Yeah, yeah, that scene is pretty tense. Yeah, that was some Alfred Hitchcock stuff. Toby, you had to leave the room during that scene, if memory serves, from an hour ago. What did you think of the scene where Matilda and Honey were being chased throughout the house by Trunchbull? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's putting on a brave face now, but... His empathy reactors were going into overdrive while that scene was going on. Yeah. You're not fooling anyone. They'll believe my word over yours. Especially because your word was meh. Yeah, that was a that was a very pregnant meh. Sounds like you're compensating for something. It's okay to have feelings, Toby. I do have feelings. And you were uncomfortable, and it's okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, Toby gets uncomfortable when, when characters are feeling very awkward. I, I wonder where he gets that from. Are you staring at me? <laughs> I mean, I know why you're staring at me. It's an us thing. I've done it too. Let's move on to the themes of the film. Uh, for one thing, I want to talk about the idea of gifted children. Matilda is a gifted child. I think in a way that is meant very explicitly to uh, appeal to children who feel alone and alienated and perhaps that they're not being fully understood by the people around them. I have talked about in... Um, our uh, James Bond um, episode, and also in the uh, heavy metal episode I recorded with Rachel, the idea of the adolescent male power fantasy through you know characters like James Bond or Superman, who um, can do all the things that we wish that we could, and oh, if only people truly understood us, they'd know how strong we are. I think Matilda might be a little girl version of that. What makes you say that as you stare at me? Well, the superpowers are a bit of a tip-off. I mean, generally speaking, I think the epitome of this type of phenomenon, at least in a female protagonist, is Lisa Simpson. Yeah. Yeah, Lisa Simpson is what every awkward teenage girl thinks that she is like, especially at that age, especially if they're a little precocious, maybe reading a couple of brackets above their grade level. And Lisa's family doesn't get her like Matilda's family, although... Lisa's family are a bit more supportive and trusting of her. Yeah, Lisa's family doesn't understand her, but they don't abuse her. Yeah, and they, they do kind of realize that Lisa's going to move on to do great things someday. Mm-hmm. That's a nice idea. Not, not necessarily everyone does it. The world is filled with child prodigies who burned out before they were 25. Yep. Matilda, Lisa, Daria Morgendorfer, I think, is another example of that. You know, if you keep rattling off characters I identified with when I was in high school, I'm going to... Just walk away from the microphone. <laughs> Another thing that made me think of is the uh, parents just don't understand trope. I was um, 
reading a biography of Kurt Cobain, and apparently one of Kurt Cobain's childhood fantasies was that he kept having these dreams that he was left on Earth by his real parents who were space aliens, and that someday the aliens would come back and take him away. And according to a couple of child psychologists, this is a pretty common fantasy amongst gifted children who are being either ignored or abused by their parents, particularly latchkey kids. That tracks, actually, for an odd reason. Kesha is one of those, like, brilliant children. She almost got a perfect score on her SAT, I think, if I recall correctly. Decided not to uh, go to college and pursue music instead because her mom is a uh, songwriter for, like, old country standards and stuff. Um, Her mom wrote the song, uh, Old Flames Can't Hold a Hit Can't Hold You for Dolly Parton. (laughs) Or at least she worked with Dolly Parton on that one. I can't remember if she wrote it entirely herself. But regardless... um, yeah, Kesha has multiple songs about someday when she dies, the it's she's not really going to be dead. It's just going to be that a spaceship is taking her home. You know what? I I know that you'll jump on any opportunity to talk about Kesha, but that one that one's relevant, so I'll let you have it. You know, I it, it that was yeah. I did not expect. I didn't know that. So Kesha has like three songs about it, and it seemed like such a weird thing to me. But now that makes sense. Yes, Kesha is not alone, like Kurt Cobain or Matilda. Anyways, all right, let's talk about the possibilities of a sequel, because there are possibilities of a sequel, believe it or not. Why? Well, in 2018, there was a commemoration for uh, the 30th anniversary of Matilda's publication. Quentin Blake, who uh, illustrated the original book, did a series of drawings that imagined what Matilda would be like as an adult. Aw. Yeah, he depicted... Oh, wait, I think I've seen those. Yeah, he depicted her as like an astrophysicist, an explorer, running the British Library, so on and so forth. Yeah, I liked the running the British Library one a lot. I thought that was cute. It was a cute little homage to her finding solace in the library. Somebody approached DeVito about it, and he said that he would totally make another Matilda film, maybe possibly about Matilda's daughter. Aww. I don't know how I feel about that one. Uh, I don't think it'll happen. I mean, most, like I said, Matilda was a cult film that came out of a box office bomb. I'm not sure if the studio would take that kind of a risk again. And also, I don't think it would work unless Mara Wilson was on board with coming back to play Matilda. Mm. And I'm under the impression that she considers that part of her life done now. Yeah. Also, too, like just plot wise, how would Matilda's daughter have any powers because they come from being you know, a victim of abuse and rage. And so why would she get any powers? Because unless something went incredibly wrong with Matilda's life. Who knows? I I, I couldn't tell you. Anyway, what were you going to say, Tobes? I wanted to say that they should make another sequel, except all the kids are adults, and they all work at the same place. And it would be awesome. That could be cool. What place would this be? A chocolate factory. Well, that would tie everything together, wouldn't it? Which Robot did in fact, enjoy doing. Just, just, just tie it. Every, everything has to be a shared universe. Everything has to have just 30 different installments. Oh, ready, ready to spearhead the Roald Dahl uh, expanded universe. But I think it, I think an older version of Miss Trunchbull should come back. Oh, boy. To the chocolate factory. I don't know if Pam and Ferris she, would come back. And try to steal all the chocolate. Like, whenever there's a retrospective on Matilda, DeVito will, t- will talk about it at the drop of a hat. Meryl Wilson's usually on board, but Pam Ferris tends to decline. I wonder why. Maybe she wants the performance to speak for itself. Maybe she wasn't, maybe she barely remembers doing it. Maybe it was just another day at the office for her. Who I, I couldn't say. Maybe. She won't talk about it, so we can only speculate. That's a bummer. Uh, 
All right, well, that blows through most of my notes. Is there anything you would like to add that we haven't discussed yet? No, not really. Just that we're all dolls amazing and all of the most of the movie adaptations are very good. Yeah, the worst one is the Tim Burton one, but if that one doesn't exist, which I'm fine with that not existing. Yeah, what is the worst one? They're all pretty good. I mean, maybe The Witches? Yeah, yeah, maybe The so Witches. That one's, it's not like James and the Giant Peach or Matilda, you know? I mean, yeah, Fantastic Mr. Fox is a very slight book, but uh, I, I love the Wes Anderson version. Anything you want to add, buddy? Yeah, yeah, before we sign off. No. Okay. Okay, we are all set. Thank you for listening, everybody. We will talk to you next time. Bye!